Amen. Well, as you take your seats, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We've been diving into this book. We've been preaching through it for a while now, and we're coming to the close of Revelation. We have the end of 20 today. We have 21 and 22 yet to finish over the next few weeks and months, and what a glorious study that we've been able to enjoy together. I wonder what tends to keep you up at night. We were to go around and just talk about, as you lay down on the pillow, it's the perfect temperature. You've lived an amazing day filled with lots of awesome opportunities of ministry and fellowship. You're exhausted, and all you want to do is go to sleep. And you put your head on the pillow, and you close your eyes, and then it's like, this little thing inside of your brain goes, you forgot to think about this all day, and just, you, you cannot sleep, you st start thinking about that thing, and it keeps you awake, and you get nervous, and you get anxious, and you wonder. Maybe you're thinking about your kids, I know that pops into my head a lot. How am I going to provide for them? How am I going to shepherd them? What's going to be the, the difficulties that they go through that are just going to break my heart? Sometimes I think about finances and providing for my family. I wonder what it is for you. I wonder what keeps you up at night. There's a lot of things that keep people up at night. But the biggest reality that keeps me up at night, the one thing more than any other thing that keeps me up at night, is this text. And thinking about you being there. I've had the privilege of ministering for 18 years in some form of pastoral ministry. Shepherding many, many souls. And there's coming a day where they might stand before God at the great white throne judgment. What keeps me up at night is wondering if they will say at that judgment, why didn't Patrick tell me more? Why didn't he warn me? If there's anything in the world that keeps me up at night, it is this text and my fear of anyone who has ever heard me preach or been in any way involved in ministry with me. I don't want you to be here. I don't want you to be here. So we need to study this text and we need to ask God to change our affections, to change our thinking, to change our hearts, to warn us and to help us to respond in grace today. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
than death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, this is perhaps the most sobering scene in all of the scriptures. There is a terrifying reality of judgment that we don't want to think about, but we are here this morning, and your word is going to inform us about this judgment. And we would do well to think about it, to meditate upon it. Father, I pray for every single person listening to this sermon, whether now, whether in live stream, whether down the road. My, my heart is... Paul says in Galatians that I, I labor until Christ is formed in our church, in each individual. And God, I pray that you would use this sermon to form Christ in our hearts and in our church. That we would take seriously the reality of this judgment. That you would bring salvation to souls, even in this room right now, who do not know the severity of this judgment, do not know the terrifying aspect of this judgment. God, wake us up, sober our hearts and our minds, quicken our spirits. And as we pray every Lord's Day, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would see, that we would behold wonderful things from your law, and that we would see Christ and celebrate him crucified, risen, and coming again. We pray it in his name. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. I just want to ask this text four questions and then go through it together and answer them. Four questions. Number one, who is the judge? Number two, who are the judged? Number three, how are they judged? And number four, what is their judgment? So number one, who is the judge? Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. A great throne. This is after the millennial kingdom. This is after Satan was released uh, and, and he went into the world and he deceived the nations again and he brought about that final revolt that we talked about last Lord's Day. And then God destroys that revolt and sends all of those uh, individuals to this scene, to the great white throne. We saw the devil in verse 10 thrown into the lake of fire but the rest of those souls that revolted against God, and we're going to find out even more, are going to be raised and brought before him at this great white throne judgment. Great. It's a great throne. It speaks of power. It speaks of towering over every other throne. Great is the word megas. It's the mega throne. It's the highest of all thrones. This is the supreme court in the entire universe. Universal uh, jurisdiction over everything. It's a great throne. It's a white throne that represents purity and holiness, that represents it not being a gray issue here. It's black or white. It's obvious. It's clear. It's objective. There's no spot. There's no blemish. It's not off color. It's blazing in its glory and its purity. And it's a throne. Throne, that word we've seen used over 50 times in the book of Revelation, speaks of authority, speaks of kingly judgment. There's no higher throne than this throne. And if you remember from chapter 4, when we first saw this throne, there was a throne that we saw in heaven 
First time that that word was given, speaking of God's abode and the throne that was in heaven. And the father was sitting on that throne. And you remember around the throne was a rainbow. And that rainbow represented the mercy of God, the access that we had to God, the promise that God had made that judgment would be staved off until the end. Notice there is no rainbow around this throne. This is a throne that is bringing only judgment. And I saw him who sat upon it. He's seated. Whoever this him is, is seated. His job is finished. He's at rest. He's not working. He's not moving around. He is at rest, having accomplished his work. So who is the judge? Who is the one sitting on this throne? Every time in the book of Revelation that we've seen this throne, this idea of this throne in heaven or this idea of this divine cosmic throne, it's always been the Father sitting on the throne. So we would do well to assume that this is the Father. At the same time, we have very clear indication in the scriptures that Jesus is going to be given final judgment and final authority in the end times to bring judgment, and he's going to be given that judgment by the Father. John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but the Father has given all of the judgment to the Son. Acts chapter 10, verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one, Jesus is the one, who has been appointed by God the Father as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is the one appointed by the Father to judge. So is it the Father or is it the Son? Who is the judge? Well, turn to chapter 22, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1. John writes, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So John sees a throne, and he says this is the throne of God the Father and of the Lamb. It's the Father's throne, and it's the Son's throne. It's both. 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. So this is the throne of the Father and the Son, of God and the Lamb. It's their throne. But then you can see in the end of verse 3 that the slaves of God will serve him. So two people on that throne with one singular pronoun, him, the Father, the Son, him. Go back to chapter 22, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So they'll be priests of the Father and of the Son and reign with him. What John is doing is being so clearly theological in his language. So who's on this throne? God the Father, yes. God the Son, yes. This is our triune God, God the Holy Spirit, affirming everything that's happening. This is the triune God on his throne, sitting in judgment over every single person standing in this line. Psalm chapter 9, verse 7, the Lord abides forever. He's established his throne for judgment. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, and God has indignation every day. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Our triune God is on the throne in different capacities bringing judgment. 
And the outcome of this judgment, because this is God judging, will be perfect. Because the judge is divine, the outcome will be perfect. There will be no inequities in this judgment. This judge cannot be deceived by lies. This judge cannot be bribed or coerced by threatening. This judge cannot be worn down by crocodile tears. He will bring comprehensive omniscience to every single person. He will bring uncompromising righteousness to every single case. And because God himself is judging, you see in the middle of verse 11, heaven and earth will flee away running away. They don't want to be here for this judgment. This judgment is so terrifying that all of heaven and earth run away, fleeing away, fled away in my Bible literally means it's taking safety by running away. You're trying to find safety somewhere else because you don't want to be there in front of this throne. This scene is staggering. All of heaven and earth flee away. There's no place found for them, but they're running away as fast as they can. So the great white throne and every single human that's standing in front of this great, great white throne is somewhere in limitless space and time. We don't know where it is, when it is, what it is. But we know that heaven and earth are being literally uncreated. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, that the elements, heaven and earth and the elements will dissolve with intense heat. 2 Peter 3, 7, right in the middle of that passage says, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So they're being reserved right now. It's like when you uh, call a restaurant and reserve a table. Nobody sits there. There's something that's going to happen at that table, and it's waiting for that to happen. God says that the earth that we're standing on is being reserved for fire and judgment for a day of terrible wrath. And this is, as we've talked about before in the book of Revelation, this is the, the reverse of the order of everything that happened. This is the reverse of Genesis. If you go all the way back, God creates the world, Genesis 1. God fills the world, Genesis 2. Sin enters the world, Genesis 3. Uh, sin fills the world, Genesis 4 through 5. The flood happens in Genesis 6 through 9 and alters the, the life expectancy. It moves from you know, Adam being 900 years old to you know, 60 to 70 years, 70 years old. You have the division of languages in Genesis 10 and 11. Separation starts to happen. And then after that, in Genesis 12, you have the call of Israel. Revelation has worked that backwards. God's brought Israel back into her homeland and is bringing a, a work of not dividing the nations, but bringing them together. Life uh, expectancy has been altered in the millennial kingdom. Sin is no longer filling the world. It's shrinking. The reverse of the curse is happening. And finally, going all the way back to Genesis 1, there's an uncreation of the world to form a new heavens and a new earth. Question number one, who is the judge? The judge is our amazing, majestic, glorious, and awesome God. Question number two, who are the judged? Question number two, who are the judged? Verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The dead, this goes back to chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 6, where we have, or verse 5, where we have the rest of the dead not coming to life until the thousand years are completed. Here's the rest of the dead coming to life. So we have the first resurrection. You're blessed if you're part of that first resurrection as a believer, and you are not blessed if you're part of that second resurrection that happens at the end of the thousand years. 
right before the great white throne. This is the rest of the dead. This is every single non-believer in the history of the world. It's spoken of in John 5, verse 29, as the resurrection unto judgment. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the resurrection to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Acts chapter 24, verse 15, the resurrection of the wicked. This is that second resurrection. Back in chapter 19, verses 17 through 18, the phrase great and small spoken of referring to every single human that was on the earth during the great tribulation, the great and the small are judged. Here too, that same phrase is brought back. The great, the megos, and the small, the micros, literally in Greek, it's micro, the micros, the megos and the micros, they're all there. No one is either too important or too insignificant not to be here. Great, they're great in their influence, they're great in their possessions, they're great in their power. Think of these great individuals that have always bought off their judges. They've always been a law unto themselves. They've been the highest on earth, and now they're standing as the lowest before God. But think also of the small. We don't even know their names. We've never even heard of these people. But God has kept the record of everything that they've ever done, everything they've ever said, everything they've ever thought. So the great and the small here together, meaning that their position in life is not a factor at the day of their judgment. The position that they had in life, whether it was high and exalted, whether it was lowly and debased, their position in life does not matter. The most accomplished athlete in the world, the richest man in the world, the most impoverished individual in all of humanity, they're all going to be there. That's because Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says there's no impartiality with God. God is not an impartial judge. And so every single non-believer will be there. Notice, if you go down to verse 13, John says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The sea gave up their dead. The last act in all of creation before creation runs away is for the sea to spit up their dead. Why does John mention the sea? I think the reason is because Probably the hardest body to get back and to bury is one that has been lost at sea. Think about, there are planes that have gone down in the oceans that we've never found. Planes. Think about a human body. One single human body going to the depth of the ocean and probably being eaten by fish down at the bottom of the sea. John says they can't escape. You would think that since we can't find them, they cannot be found and they escape the judgment. But John says every single non-believer that's in the ocean that had their burial at sea, they're going to be there. Death in Hades, middle of verse 13. They gave up their dead. Death, speaking of the uh, abode of death, the place of death. Hades, speaking as the abode of where wicked people go when they die. In the New Testament, it's used to speak of a place of punishment for the wicked when they die. Luke chapter 16, verse 23, the rich man and Lazarus, remember that parable? Uh, Jesus says that the rich man dies and he goes to torment in Hades. This brings up a question in my mind. Doesn't their judgment happen when they die? It's appointed in a man, Hebrews says, once to die and then judgment. So why wait for this judgment. In fact, even for believers, it would seem that one of the hardest things in the Bible is to try and figure out the timing of the Bema Seat judgment. We'll talk about this later, but the timing of the Bema Seat judgment, is it a once for all with all believers? I would probably take the position that it happens when a believer dies, 
But even believers are judged. They're judged differently than non-believers. They're not judged at the great white throne judgment, but they are judged. But they're judged right at the moment when they die. And they're judged according to uh, the, the way that they serve the Lord. They're given their crowns. They're given their rewards. So why do we need a great white throne? Why do we need a judgment after the judgment right after non-believers die? I think here's the reason. The impact of their wickedness is still yet to be seen in their kids, in their grandkids, in the people that they influenced all around them. The influence of their ungodliness is still being perpetuated in the world. And so therefore, the only time that we can actually see the, the furtherance of their wickedness and how it impacts others to wickedness is at the end of all of human history, the end of time. Then the books will be opened. And then every wicked deed you have done and how it impacted others will be shown. So who are the judged? Those that are defiant against God, God-haters, also religious people, good people, nice people, procrastinators, people that say, eh, I'll follow God later. I have time now. I'm going to live it up now, and I'll follow God later. Even church members. This is why this is a fear for me preaching this text. I don't want any of you to be here at this great white throne judgment. I want you to be here now on the Lord's day to hear about this judgment, to know I don't want to be at that judgment. John Phillips writes, there is a terrible fellowship here. The dead, the small and the great stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives are filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there, whose very sins were drab and mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common and cheap. The great will be there, men who sinned with a high hand, with rash and with courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world for their stage and who died unrepentant at last. Now one and all are arranged and on their way to be damned, a horrible fellowship congregated together for the very first and final time. Who are the judged? It's every sinner that dies apart from Christ. There will be no sin in the history of the world escaping this judgment. All the unsaved for all time will be here at the great white throne judgment. Who is the judge? It's our God. Who are the judged? All non-believers. Number three, how are they judged? How are they judged? Verse 12 and 13 give us clarity with how they are judged. John sees the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened by none other than Jesus himself. Books were opened, plural books, opened by God. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So how are they judged? They're judged according to their works, according to what they have done, according to their deeds. There are at least 42 explicit instances in the Bible where the scriptures speak of man being judged by their works, by their deeds. Scripture also makes constant reference to a register of human actions. Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 56, Isaiah 65, Daniel 7, Malachi 3, Matthew 12. There's a whole host of verses that describe God keeping a record of every single human action that's ever been lived out. 
And this is the evidence that's presented against the non-believers. Books are opened by Christ himself, and they are books in the plural because there are so many of them. You have volumes and volumes and volumes of everything that you've ever done, you've ever said, you've ever thought, you've ever had an attitude about. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or it's evil. Matthew 16, verse 27 says, all of our actions will be judged. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 says, every careless word that we speak will be judged. Matthew 12, 37 says that even the words that we speak can be used against us because if we say you shouldn't do this and then we do it, we will be such hypocrites that we will be judged according to our own earthly, fleshly human standards and doubly judged before God. Luke chapter 8, verse 17 says, nothing that is hidden will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So even your secret thoughts, your secret desires, every single thought, every single deed, therefore, this judgment is based on irrefutable evidence. It's not willy-nilly judgment. It's not, you know, I think you probably didn't live the best that you should have, and bad for you. There's absolute accuracy as God judges every individual. And the absolute accuracy of God's judgment will ensure that the unbeliever's punishment in hell fits their iniquity. The Bible seems to be pretty clear that there are differing degrees of punishment in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15 says, Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for this city. They rejected God. You're rejecting Jesus in your presence with uh, the Holy Spirit testifying. So it's going to be more tolerable. They had less information to go off of. Hell will still be awful and torment, but there seem to be varying degrees, not levels like a Dante Inferno kind of a thing, but there seem to be varying degrees of punishment. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Because if the miracles had been, had occurred, that occurred in Tyre and Sidon occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. You didn't. Therefore, people in hell will all be miserable, but not equally miserable. You will be paid, repaid according to your judgment. Psalm 62 says, all of your works, you will be repaid with judgment. Think about how staggering this is. If you could go to someone in hell right now and you could say to them, was that one sin? Just pick any sin. Was that one sin worth it? The one sin. Just name any sin. Was that one sin worth it? They would say no. Because it's brought even greater judgment. It's even greater rebellion against God and it's brought even greater torment. There's no escape for the dead, for the non-believers at this judgment. If you want to escape from showing up in court, you know, today, you can, you can run away. But in that day, you can't flee. There's no defense attorney. There's no one to represent you. In our judicial system, you can't have the prosecutor also be the judge and also be the jury. But that's the way that this trial works. God will summon you. God will be your jury. God will be your judge. And God will be your executioner. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says that even right now, People are storing up wrath for ourselves on that day. It's like, a, it's like a bad form of a retirement account. Right now, if you have a retirement account, just a little bit is put away each month so that by the end of your life, 
You have a lump sum that you can live off of? The Bible says that we all are storing up for ourselves judgment, just a little bit of judgment, every sin, a little bit of judgment, a little bit of judgment, and then by the time we get to the end of our life, we reap what we sow, and we have that entire retirement account of judgment given to us. What stands out to me about this scene of judgment is that no one gets an opportunity to defend themselves. No one gets an opportunity to explain themselves. Listen, Your Honor, I didn't do that last one. That wasn't me. Or I know I shouldn't have done that one. Please, I'm pleading guilty. Maybe you, you don't understand the motive for why I did what I did. I know that it's wrong, but there was a good motive behind it. No one gets to talk back. Who is the judge? It's our God. Who are the judged? It is every single unbeliever standing before this great white throne. How are they judged? They're judged according to their deeds, according to their works. All of these books are open with every single deed that they've ever committed. Finally, number four, what is their judgment? What is their judgment? End of verse 13, they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We've discussed the lake of fire. We've discussed hell. We've discussed eternal uh, conscious torment a lot over the last few months talking about the book of Revelation. Here there's a, an order. Death is destroyed. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says is going to happen at the end of time. The final enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then hell will be thrown in the lake of fire. So hell will be destroyed. The place where non-believers go now when they die, they will, that, that location, that place, wherever it is, will be thrown into the lake of fire. So death is thrown into the lake of fire. It's destroyed. Hell is thrown into the lake of fire. It's destroyed. And every single non-believer will find themselves in the exact same location of verse 10 where the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are also. And we saw last week that the false prophet and the beast, the Antichrist and the false prophet, had been in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Humans in the lake of fire for a thousand years, not dying. They don't cease to exist. They continue in their torment. It's a terrible reality. We've discussed why that is absolutely fair. We've, we've talked before about how difficult the concept of hell truly is, the biblical reality of hell. A question that I had so often growing up in the church, growing up at a Christian school, growing up hearing all of the uh, teachings on hell, if I live to 70, 80 years old, and I die in my sin, unrepentant, hating God, spurning the gospel, shouldn't I then be judged for 70 or 80 years in hell? It doesn't seem fair that I, I live for 70 or 80 years here, and then I'm judged for all of eternity. That does not seem fair. The reason it doesn't seem fair is because my mind is thinking so lowly about who I'm sinning against. We've talked about this a number of times. If I'm playing basketball with my dear friend Sergio, I'm a little bit taller than he is, so if I'm playing basketball and we're out there on the court and uh, Sergio dunks over me, which would be a miracle, and <laughs> dunks over me, and I get incredibly angry because he dunked over me, and, and he showed me up, and I look uh, like a failure, and so... I just punch him in the face, right? Just angry, I punch him in the face. 
What's going to happen to our relationship? What is the consequence of that action? He's probably not going to want to play basketball the next time that I say, hey, here's a ball. You want to go play? There's going to be a, a, a break until I go back and I say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And Sergio's an amazing man. He's going to say, absolutely, I forgive you. And then we'll, we'll work on it. We'll work together and we'll be okay. What if when I punch Sergio, he becomes terrified and calls the cops because he thinks I'm going to keep on throwing fists at him and I punch a cop? It's the same action. I punch Sergio in the face. And what happens? Handshake, I'm sorry, hug, please forgive me, we're good. Can't do that with a cop. If I punch a cop, we're not handshake, we're good, please forgive me, okay. No, I'm going to jail. Same exact action, but different outcome. You could punch the President of the United States. It's not going to wind up well for you. Might be condemned for treason, an act of treason, maybe put on death row, maybe just life in prison for a long time. Who knows? Same action, differing consequences. So therefore, if you punch the God of the universe with your sin, an infinite, eternal, holy God, then your punishment will be infinite and eternal. It absolutely makes sense. It's absolutely fair. It's terrifying, but it's absolutely fair. What is their judgment? Their judgment is to be thrown alive into the lake of fire where there will never be a chance for repentance. There will never be a chance for mercy or grace anymore. Notice they have been raised from the dead as they stand before this great white throne. They're raised from the dead. They're given resurrection bodies. They're given glorified bodies so that they can last forever in hell. If they're not given glorified bodies, then they would die instantly, be burned alive instantly in the lake of fire. But they're given bodies that can continue forever. They're given bodies when Jesus describes hell in the Gospels, he describes a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you don't have resurrected jaws and resurrected teeth, you're going to gnash your teeth, grind them to powder. But these individuals in hell and in the lake of fire will be gnashing their teeth out of pain, yes, but probably more so out of anger. Jesus had more to say about hell than he did about heaven in the Gospels, and he did so as a warning. No one here has an opportunity to be saved. There are some cults and false religions that teach that Jesus preaches to you when you die and that you get saved because he's an amazing preacher. He's a better preacher than all of us combined. And so you're going to get saved. There's a second chance. You die, you stand before Jesus, he preaches to you, and you get saved. Not so. And if you are at this throne, you're lost. This is my fear. I, I, I wonder... I wonder how many people have heard sermons about the gospel, they've heard sermons about judgment, and they've thought, hmm... I can make a change later. Or maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe when they die and they open their eyes in hell, they'll think, this is awful, it was true, but maybe I can repent. And at some point, they will be raised. They'll be taken out of hell. And I think that there are going to be a lot of people taken out of hell, standing before the great white throne judgment, saying, phew, 
Now I get to plead my cause. Now I get to plead my case. That was awful. I don't ever want to go back there. But now I have a little bit of a respite. And maybe he'll hear me and forgive me. And I, I just don't want that to be you. I don't want you to be here at this great white throne. And if you are here at this great white throne judgment, knowing what you know now, do you realize how terrified you will be? After exiting hell and thinking, maybe, maybe, just maybe I'm going to have a chance. But you know from Revelation 20, you'll be taken out of hell to stand before the great white throne to be judged all over again. Think of how many quote-unquote Christians will be in this long line of humanity knowing that their doom is sealed, their fate is done. As I said earlier, this is the most terrifying passage in all the scriptures. What are we to do with this? This is probably the heaviest sermon that I've ever had to preach. This is a very dark week in studying and in thinking this through. Lots of tears, lots of praying. What are we to do? Three points of application. Number one, we all need a vision of this throne before our eyes. We all need a vision of this throne. We need to see this throne every second of every day. You need to see this throne so that when you are wanting to do things your way, you remember you're not sovereign. God is. Look at John. John has seen so much unbelievable, I mean, truly fantastic things happening, right? The, the heavens and earth are running away from John. The, the seas are spitting out bodies. This has to be the strangest sight in the world for John to be beholding, but he doesn't talk about any of that first off. He starts with, I see a throne. So in the chaos of whatever's going on in your world, the first thing, the only thing that you need to see is the throne. You struggle with pride just like me? You need a view of this throne to realize we're not on it. <laughs> this isn't where we sit. God sits there. You struggle with sin just like me. You need to have a view of this throne to realize there's a day of judgment coming and every single sin that you ever commit in your thinking, in your words, in your actions, it will be held accountable. You'll be accountable for it and you will have to give an account on that last day. So number one, we need a vision of this throne before our eyes. Number two, we need to remember that judgment is coming. Not only do we need a vision of this throne in our eyes, but we need to remember judgment's coming. Jonathan Edwards, old Puritan pastor, said that he would resolve his life to live with one eye upon heaven and one eye upon hell. He said, quote, I want one ear to hear the hallelujahs of heaven and one ear to hear the shrieks of the tormented in hell. Think of how that would sober us up. Think of the, the things that we laugh at and find silly that we would say, no, 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 that's not something that we should be laughing about. Think of the ways that we spend our time. Think of the things that we choose to look at. He said in his resolutions that he would read every birthday and every beginning of the, the new year, resolution number 55, Jonathan Edwards said, resolved to endeavor to put to, to endeavor my utmost to act as though I think I should have if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and already experienced the torments of hell. 
I want to act now knowing that's a reality. And there has to be a reality like this. There has to be a day like this in which God settles inequities with perfect justice. Romans talks about it being the day of wrath. 2 Peter talks about it being the day of judgment. Jude talks about it being the judgment of that great day. It's already etched into God's calendar, Acts chapter 24 says. And yet, so many people do not believe that judgment is coming. R.C. Sproul said, quote, modern man is betting his eternal destiny that there will be no final judgment. This is arguably the most disbelieved passage in the whole Bible. Many people may even believe in hell, but they don't believe they're going to go there. And so I want to ask you a question, and I want, I want to ask you honestly to assess yourself and to think through the answer to this question. Do you think that when you die, you are going to go to hell? Do you think that when you die, you are going to go to hell? Because Matthew chapter 7 says that hell will be filled with many people who never thought they were going there. Not every person who professes Christ possesses Christ. I love it the way one pastor said it, in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but someday every single one of us will have to sing solo before God. A day of final judgment awaits every single one of us. Are you living today in light of judgment. Finally, number three, and this is the ultimate purpose of this passage. If we see this throne and we see that judgment is coming, every single one of us, our hearts should be crying out, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? If you're like me, you read this and you say, I don't want any of my books opened. I don't want any of my books open. Maybe there's a book that's just actions. Maybe there's a book that's just attitudes. Maybe there's a book that's just emotions. Maybe there's a book that's just thoughts. I don't want any of them opened. How can I ensure, how can you ensure that our books will never be opened and we can be saved? We can avoid this judgment. The answer is point number three in conclusion. Run to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. If you're like me and you look here and you go, I don't want any of my books being opened up. I don't want anybody to see what's going on. I don't want that. I, I'm scared to death of that. I know that all of those books would condemn me. You need to remember that there's another book that's here. We read it. There's a book. There's books that are open, verse 12, but then another book is open, which is the book of life. Verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, you are thrown into the lake of fire. But if your name is found in the book of life, then your books will not be opened. See, everyone here at this great white throne judgment is judged based on their works. But there is a gracious way that God has given for us not to be judged on our works. Believers' salvation is not dependent on their works. You're saved based on faith. You're not condemned based on your lack of faith. You're condemned for your deeds, for your work. You're condemned based on your works. You're not saved based off of your works. God's judgment is based on works. Salvation is not of works, but of grace. So, 
What God the Father says is, I'm going to send Jesus, and he's going to fill up books. He's going to fill up a book of thoughts, and a book of actions, and a book of attitudes, and a book of desires. He's going to fill up a book of speech. He's going to fill up books. And you can comb through every single one of those books, every volume that Jesus ever lived out on this earth. You can comb through every single one, and you will never find any sin. Jesus would gladly say, read my books. I've got nothing to hide. And in kindness and mercy, just like we sang earlier, his, his mercy is more. Our, our sin is great, and his mercy is greater. Because he says, Patrick, just think of the miracle of this. Patrick, we can leave all your books closed. We don't have to open one of them. We don't have to look at one of them. And he just writes over all of them, paid in full. And he can send those books to hell. It was thrown at Jesus on the cross. The judgment that all of those deeds and those books deserve, that was taken and thrown at Jesus. And on the cross, God the Father looked at all of my books and said, I'm going to punish Jesus for living these things out. So that God the Father can say to you and to me, do you want Jesus' books? Do you want a perfect record of never having done anything wrong? Do you want that? Because if you do, it's yours. It's yours today. Take those books. Receive his work by grace. I don't want to be judged on my works. I want to be judged on his works. That's why we sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. If I'm dressed in his righteousness, I have nothing to fear. No condemnation now I dread. But if you're wearing your own righteousness, if you're wearing your own good works, so to speak, then you have every reason to be afraid. Because every single book that you have ever lived out will be opened and you will give an account for it and you will be found condemned. If you die and your name is in the book of life, you go to be with Jesus. Everyone else will be at this throne judgment, at this great white throne judgment. Where do you want your name to be? Where is your name? For believers, we should stare at this text with dumbfounded gratitude. That all of our books have been closed, paid for, judged, and across all of them, just spray painted as big as you could possibly see, it is finished. For believers, our gratitude should know no bounds. It should motivate us to evangelism because there are people in our lives, there are people that we know that are even here in this church that will be at this great white throne judgment if they do not turn and follow Jesus and beg him for that perfect record of righteousness that he has offered. So for non-believers, I would say this. From this text, repent now. Turn now. You do not want to go to this court. Settle this out of court the way that God has intended for you through the gospel to be forgiven and to be reconciled. The bottom line that we've seen over and over again in Revelation, and it's the theme of the gospel, if you're born once, then you die twice. But if you're born twice through the gracious gift of the new birth, regeneration, that God makes you alive with Christ, then you only die once, 
and you can live this life fearless with gratitude, joy, assurance, confidence, and no condemnation because of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this passage that is absolutely terrifying. I just think about the blessing of having a church family who desires to be sober in our thinking, who desires to see and stare at judgment because we know the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. And so we've seen the bad news and now we see the beauty of Christ and we want to thank him. We want to survey the wondrous cross. We want to be undone by our sin, but then even more undone by his mercy. And so, Father, I pray that as we prepare our hearts now, as we have been this entire service, to partake of communion, to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in our place. God, I pray that we would see this in light of what we've just said, what we've just studied. We all have books. You've kept record of all of our books, all of our deeds. We have volumes and volumes and volumes. Some will still be written even after we die because of the impact of our unrighteousness and our wickedness. We have so many volumes of sin. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us to give us perfection, to give us a perfect record, volumes of unending obedience. That's what we celebrate this morning. Father, help us to do that this morning rightly, rejoicing in your substitutionary atonement, you taking our place at the cross. So as we sing, as we prepare to partake, may we do so with joy. And I pray for any in this room that just does not know, is not sure, is not certain that it is finished at the cross. That today would be the day of salvation. That we would be able to talk and dialogue about the beauty of Christ. And that today they would bow the knee to Jesus and be welcomed into his family. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This time I'm going to ask the men to come and to pass out the bread. Uh, take it, hold it. We will partake together as a church family once we are done singing. But as we sing, meditate on these realities. Pray as we sing to the Lord for his amazing goodness at the cross.